0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it is just on 4 o'clock and it's time for two hours of Tuesday Hometown with Jan Bartlett. Today the BLF Green Bands and a tour of the sites saved. That's going to happen at the end of this month. I'll be speaking with Dave Kerran. An update on Western Sahara with Gabby Alamin, part two of Nick McClellan's interview about the Pacific Forum meeting in Nauru and his feelings about the situation of the refugees and asylum seekers trapped on Nauru. Dr Tim Anderson is back from the Middle East and... Peter Murphy is back from Brussels and Holland with the findings from the International People's Tribunal which um, focused on Philippines. But first Mr Kevin Healy
2: A week Jane Listener when this her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission Interim Report found our highly respected banks and highly responsible financial institutions were driven by greed and dishonesty. Good God, who would have thought Wonder how many billions of our taxes were spent to come up with that with the obvious. We we could have told them that at the outset at our usual fee and saved them those billions. Suppose the consolation for the highly respected banks and highly responsible financial institutions is that the unsaved billions came from the taxes of the ripped off by greed and dishonesty. Well, for goodness sake, why should we pay taxes that are then wasted to attack us in this clearly biased way which shows just how removed his honour is from the realities of the everyday business world? It shows we have been correct in avoiding, or uh, uh, sorry, uh, minimising our legal tax obligations. Following the damning report, fledgling big economic guru Josh Friedham Iceberg continued the industrious get-things-done approach he brought to frying the icebergs, frying the planet, and announced that, like he's addressing of frying the planet, he would be just as positive. Once again, he had the bankers and financial billionaires shaking in their Swiss leather boots. I will do nothing. Well, more correctly, Josh said, and this is a direct quote, ill-considered rules could constrict lending and hurt the economy. Yeah, like business as usual, which landed us where we are. Well, not just the financial sector, but the caring business class generally know self-regulation is the fail-safe control to any of them behaving badly. Ah yes, just what exactly does self-regulation mean, we, we asked the bankers. Well, it's obvious, really. It means we regulate for self. Uh, That's for yourselves. Who else? Look, it's a two-way street. We know we're ripping everyone off, and our customers know we're ripping them off. Give and take. Well, well, take and take. Last week we expressed our excitement as the big day was approaching, and of course the excitement reached its climax when what we couldn't wait for, but had no choice but to wait for, finally arrived. The big match between the defending Premier, the Caring Business Class Party team, and the challenger for the Premiership Cup, the Socialist Party team, after not only had the Caring Business Class team sacked its Captain Tunna Bull, but the ABC was also banned from broadcasting. Casting the game after the new business class captain scuttled them more, Lash Sun, known affectionately particularly in the tabloid media as Scutt. But, and his uh, sorry, half-back media player, Mitch Fyfeld Objectivity, said they hate the ABC because it only broadcasts the game when it's being played on the left side of the ground, the left wing, which was very strange because the ball never strays onto the left wing since the Socialist Party captain and would-be Premiership captain, Little Billy Shorten Ambition, announced his game plan to make sure his team too went nowhere near it, and the caring business class team all went straight to the back line, ultra-defensive with former Captain Tiny a bit more for the bosses and his equally extreme backward-pocket teammates like uh, bets on the bosses and Screws the Workers, Fiorance, well, Christian married son, at the extreme backward-pocket position. And then a zombie dripping with rotting detritus lurched into the defence of goal square, standing there trying to block the goalpost, but facing the wrong way, facing the crowd, who turned out, to be, the uh, zombie that is, Constable Peter Duffer, who was either very confused, which is the strong possibility, or he was trying to protect the players from the hordes in the outer. And then one of the emergencies, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil, stopped people entering the ground altogether until the workers on the gates agreed to forego their selfish, crippling penalty rates and accept a wage cut for the good of the game, a demand supported by the umpires. And then this bloke in drag, who looked like the Catholic Archbishop, stood over on the far boundary, blessing the caring business class team with one hand and counting this huge pile of money with the other whatever that was all about and then tragedy the game had to be called off because no one could find the socialist party team little billy and the team seemed to have disappeared reportedly he told them that if they didn't turn up they couldn't lose so so it all ended up a bit disappointing really more than a bit disappointing this politics of envy class warfare nonsense being proposed by her most gracious majesty's opposition in her most gracious majesty's home country by its out of control captain jeremy corbyn to transfer equity in caring employers companies to their lazy avaricious workers a progressive 10-year plan ending with those lazy avaricious owning a whopping 10% of the company, for no greater reason than the silly socialist suggestion that without them, the companies, the barons of industry, would be struggling to make a cent, or in this case, a penny. What nonsense. It's just another argument for getting rid of workers altogether. They'll price themselves out of the market, and the caring employers themselves doing the work. Thankfully, True Blue Aussies have been warned to watch out for this threat and cut it off at its roots, and more particularly at the ballot box, by no less a great True Blue Aussie than the former High Commissioner to London, and indeed former member of the caring business class team, Alexander. Because we can all imagine the aforementioned socialist captain, Little Billy, threatening caring employers here with giving workers a share of the profits any day now. Particularly if someone convinces him in Sir Humphrey's words, it would be a courageous policy. But Alexander as an interim measure has warned great True blue corporates operating in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, True companies should be taking this policy seriously. Labour is determined to introduce this and wait for it, listener, it gets worse and other radical policies. For example, they would mandate that all big companies must have trade unionists on their boards Utilities would be nationalised, etc., etc. Oh, and who knows what the etc., etc. might include. Alexander doesn't say how they could avoid the policy, but I think he means get out fast and set up your head office somewhere else. Exploit, or sorry, employ the thankless workers from there. Thankfully again, and let's hope he's correct, it's highly debatable that the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country people would vote for Corbynomics, he predicted. Just when we thought we'd lost Alexander, he keeps turning up, recently scripting an extremely profound analysis of wealth and poverty, why some people are filthy rich and lots more people are dirt poor which he managed to do without once mentioning capitalism a monumental achievement in itself it all comes down to good parenting he said so there's the answer to poverty and presumably dirt poor households or gutters or whatever are the result of bad bad parenting if you're poor you had bad parents it's, a, it's as simple as that He did point out that some silly socialist suggested that there should be a more equitable distribution of wealth could prevent the filthy rich investing in wealth creation, which would make the dirt poor even more dirt poor. Alexander also said people claim he's filthy rich because of his filthy rich parents, and their filthy rich parents, and the privileges, the silver spoon stuck at his mouth at birth, which clearly didn't choke him, but no. It wasn't that his parents were filthy rich, but simply that they were good parents who bestowed love and caring on his siblings and him. He didn't mention bestowing filthy riches, and therefore good parenting made him the great man that he is. He's all modesty, the old Alexander. But just as disappointing, we must finish on a sad note. The impending death of satire. Thanks to many, but in particular, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor, who this week said the U.S. of hated globalism, embraced patriotism, and having said he didn't care about the rest of the world, attacked the rest of the world. Although he had a very good relationship with China, which understood his position and just loved him. The same China that is ripping off the U.S. of in an abusive trade relationship, plundering U.S. of wealth. Countries accepted U.S. of foreign aid without giving anything back, whatever that meant. And he was sure Iranian big supremo Rouhani is an absolutely lovely man who is spreading chaos, death and destruction across the Middle East. Horrible. And he, Donald, had accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Well, that got a good laugh from the audience. And he did have the modesty to say almost any administration and the modesty to say how people admired his giant mind. Presumably inside his giant swelled head. And he respected the women who accused his Supreme Court nominee, who was one of the finest men in the whole world. Emphasis on men. Even though the women were lying stooges. And anyway, Donald knows important men like Donald and Supreme Court nominees who know what's good for women's bodies can do what they like, and women just love it. And well, it went on. No satire. He said all that. He's making us redundant, forcing us into retirement. But, cure your excitement, listener. Bad news, not yet. I'll be back with more of this nonsense next week. Good afternoon.
3: Mr.
1: Kevin Healy. When mention is made of the famous Australian BLF green bands of the 1960s and 1970s, the emphasis is usually on Sydney and the fight to preserve parts of the natural built environment, and socially and environmentally significant sites. This emphasis overshadows the equally important and successful saving of Victoria's heritage by the Victorian branch of the VLF led by Norm Gallagher. On Friday the 12th of October, it's your chance to acknowledge the successful struggles to preserve the heritage through the 2018 Green Bands Walking Tour. And what better way to do that than with a guide who was part of the Green Bands actions in those years. And I'm speaking about Dave Kerrin. Dave, we can't talk about the Green Bands of the 60s and 70s without going back to find out about that union and its history and why these things happened.
4: The BLF basically came out of, uh, both in Victoria and New South Wales, it came out of a struggle against um, corrupt leaderships under Norm Gallagher and then subsequently under Jack Mundy in New South Wales. They both threw out, or Paddy Malone before Gallagher, uh, threw out um, corrupt leaderships, like gangster leaderships basically. Crime has always tried to find a foothold in construction and other industries where you get a, a quick turnaround on your dollar so you can clean up dirty money. It's, it's always been there, and hence that word corruption has always been connected to the construction industry. What employers learnt to do was to connect it to the unions, because for a time there they were corrupt and gangster-like. Once the left leaderships uh, stepped in and they they took on the gangsters, uh, and you know a lot of that fighting was done by uh, Second World War veterans, especially Communist Party rank-and-file and, and leaderships who had fought in the Second World War. I mean, ironically and sadly, we, we, just, we just buried one last, last Monday, uh, Norm Wallace, and Norm had been in Z-Force, in the commando units during the war, and uh, in fact wasn't able to talk about that until the, until the 1980s, around about the time we were deregistered. So he was he was typical of that generation of leaders that, that um, many of them had fought in every theatre of the Second World War. They came in, they came back, they had a different expectation, set of expectations than the ones they went away with, and they wanted to make this a better country. So what they ran into was these corrupt gangsters, and they organised and and they threw them out. That sort of generated a a comradeship and an understanding of what it is what it is they wanted from the union where you know some idea of where they were headed that began to coalesce around very strong leaderships by the late 60s and early 70s as a young person coming in you were positively confronted with uh, with this sort of this type of unionism that did its day-to-day work within the framework of a better world and not just a bigger share of this one
1: was it also true, like with the waterside unions, that the BLF gave work to people who might have been previously in trouble?
4: Yes, indeed. It was, uh, you had a number of places where that could happen. So a person who'd been in strife had a number of options. They could go for the lower paid, sort of lifelong jobs in places like the railways or power industry or, or wherever. Or they could take the more militant, slightly higher money route in construction, waterfront, that sort of thing. So, it was a massive turnaround in many thousands of lodes, basically, because that was the other thing that happened coming back from the Second World War. There was a lot of um, a lot of families are torn apart, a lot a lot of unresolved pain and suffering, and often that you know that resolved itself in uh, things like alcoholism, and you know like you get today, alcohol and other drugs today. And uh, the industry was a place where people could. You know the, where there was comradeship, where there was understanding. Where if the employer tried to put a bloke off because he had a few problems and uh, you know misbehaved or whatever, the union was there as the line of defence, and that's what made the difference. In fact, we had a number of leaders step up who, who one time had you know serious uh, mental health problems that, yeah, they were able to resolve through the comradeship that the union provided.
1: Now we're talking about green bans. Saving the, the um, buildings and the environment. But it goes right back a, further than that, doesn't it? In the 1940s, after World War II, actually, the union stopped a, a small goods factory being built opposite the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Were there other examples earlier than that as well?
4: There were examples that preceded the BLF involvement, even. Uh, so the plumbers in South Australia were very environmentally conscious. Um, a lot of their leaders, again, they were Communist Party leaders. Um, were very aware of of heritage, of the environmental importance of parklands, things like that. So, no, you're right. It's something really not spoken about. It's not something I've really ever looked into very deeply. But I do know it's there. I I, I ran across old documents, as I say, especially from the plumbers in South Australia, and I remember thinking, wow, that that was really far-sighted, you know, really far-sighted thinking about the role of chemicals and in life and that sort of thing. And I guess coming out of the Second World War, where a lot of those things were founded like where scientists found chem- chemicals and toxins and used them for, you know, in in creative ways, the offshoot of that was that yeah, unions were starting to twig that crikey, some of these things are really toxic. I mean, they really do damage you. So well ahead of like people underestimate the the length of time it took for the for the asbestos campaign and things like that to really take hold but there were decades of of fighting around this stuff because people were starting to twig that there's something wrong here. And it happened unevenly across our movement, but there were always voices. I think the thing that made it different was that the late 60s was the massive revolt that had grown around Vietnam and South Africa and then subsequently Indigenous and other things that that people in Australia began to become aware of. I think it was within that, context that, you know, a lot of the younger ones, John Cummins, Johnny Lowe, that generation, my generation, you know, that's how we became involved. And then we ran into these communist leaders who had had an amazing vision for where they wanted the country to go. And, you know, when you look back now at things like um, what the unions were saying around what we now call neoliberalism and the fact that it would be the end of sovereignty and we would you know be unable to make the sort of decisions we need to make as a country because basically everything would be sold without a shot being fired just how far-sighted these people were
1: when do you think of melbourne and probably bendigo ballarat and other places the buildings that were built because of the gold gold mm. rush and the the wealth that came in, and those beautiful buildings that were everywhere. I'm just wondering how the union decided which ones they try to save.
4: Yeah, well, it's really, I suppose, when people bought a particular building to, to to the union's notice. You know, like so that happened with with um, with the Vic Market uh, in 1971, in those early 70s. Well, the very first green band, which was actually happening in Melbourne, not Sydney, although it was called a black band still, as Jackwise reminds me. <laughs> so, that was a parkland in Carlton, and, uh, where the kids from the flats used to play, public housing flats, and they're still there. The flats are still there and the park's still there because, because of the BLF. And now, that was uh, early in the 1970s, earlier in the 1970s than Kelly's Bush, which occurred in the 1970s in, in Sydney. There's one place I'd really advise people to go and have a look at if they haven't already and it's it's on the corner of Queen and Collins. It's um, a beautiful old ANZ bank. That whole block, because of the struggle around that particular one right on the corner, that whole block was saved because it was all destined to be pulled down and when you look at it you think my god how can anyone ever think about tearing that down but but for people to go along and have a look inside you can you can sneak in the back and have a look in the back uh, section as well the work that was done in there you know it, it, like just it, it's one of the most got to be one of the most beautiful buildings in the world like it's just absolutely incredible and most people don't know it's there so and it's only there because of union action and a lot of that stretch 333 Collins and, you know, of course everyone knows about the Regent and, but a lot of the buildings along the way, a lot of people don't realise they were also under the hammer. But because of the more public fights over some of them, the employers dropped off on the others. So the extent to which there's anything beautiful left along that Collins Street, street pretty much due to the the green bands of the, of the union.
1: And, of course, most of those buildings were used by the, the ruling class, but when you get to the city baths, it was a different story. Yeah. And the market.
4: That, that, that's right. And, um, you know, the baths was, as the name suggests, they were baths. They were for people who, you know, like I, I remember moving out of home myself, there was no, there wasn't a, a shower in there or anything. So I, I'd go along with city baths, you know, and, the pool there kicked off, and and a lot of people would go and and do their physical you know training there. So Norm Wallace he, he swam there every morning before work at the office. I, I mean the Jewish community used that uh, those baths you know for women they need the rainwater for period ritual during the month. The history around those places is just it really speaks of Melbourne and how it developed, and you know the, a lot of the Jewish community had been active in in the left back before all of the the disagreements over um, Palestine, there was a a massive Jewish presence in the Labor movement, and in in the left, in the Communist Party, etc. And the city bars played an enormous role in the lives of of a lot of those women. So our history, there's there's a hidden working-class history often, and uh, these days, the information age, there's a lot of information people don't have, and it's it's interesting.
1: Well, for every action, there must have been a reaction, and of course you've got state government, you've got builders, you've got developers. Mm. What was the reaction?
4: Oh, look, it was often swift and brutal. You know, they'd come in and tear something down overnight or burn it or, yeah. Which still happens today. Still happens to this day. So that was there because, again, the industry was, you know, when when the gangsters were thrown out of the union, they they worked for for the boss, as you'd expect. And that's where, of course, that's where, you know, the union got its name for violence. Like uh, the union rightfully said we are not going to put our members in a position where they will be bashed and harassed and then have the state intervene over that after the fact. If we cannot proactively defend our members and our rank and file and our leaders, if our spokespeople don't have the confidence to be able to get up and speak, then they won't because family will have to come first. But if thugs and criminals know that if they want to touch our spokespeople, there will be a price to pay then what you find is they start to drop off. And that's in fact what happened. But uh, the baggage with that was that the union was seen as as thugs. And even when we were saving parklands and buildings, the union was painted as, like the methods were painted as being uh, violent. But the violence, as other places in history, the violence was justifiable. I mean, these people had just come out of the Second World War. They understood fascism and they weren't going to stand by and see it applied to union rank and file by a bunch of paid thugs. So that legacy's there and I think that we need to confront that legacy stand up and be very proud of it rather than trying to duck and weave around it because uh, when you duck and weave around it you do look like you're up to something criminal and wrong rather than a correct application of violence, a defence violence and, uh, yeah.
1: What was it like on the front line as a union member during those years?
4: Just, uh, Just the most amazing <laughs> Uh, eye-opening bunch of you know experiences around people who'd been there and done it, I suppose. So,
1: and on the on the site, on the job,
4: on the job again. Period of massive change, late 60s, early 70s, especially those early 70 years for people like me. I come in at the end of 1970 as a boy. Uh, yeah, the, when that Eureka flag went up, for instance, like back then, you have got to remember that the population in the building industry was around 80% direct migrant. So it wasn't like sons and, and second sons. It was Back then it was direct migrant workers. So a lot of, you know, Italian and, and Greek and uh, Serb and Croatian, and uh, there was a lot of racism as a result. And so when that Eureka flag was raised above the building site and we were all told, you know, we're all the same, we're all equal, and everyone will play an equal role in the union, that was an incredibly, yeah, creative period in the history of the union movement, let alone... The construction unions because people like me, I was hearing from Scottish, Welsh, English, Italian exiles basically. <laughs> I ran into Spanish anarchists who uh, were exiled by Franco from the Civil War. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's been a period, you know, since then that's been the same. I'm sure it's coming. <laughs>
1: it's just around the corner.
4: I think so. I can feel it in my bones and I can see it in a lot of the young as they stand up beside refugees and. Things like that. I can see it and feel it's the same energy that was there when I was young. So it's just yet to form, you know, it's yet to, well, it's the word, sort of um, coalesce.
1: A number of union officials were jailed over those years. Was it directly because of green, green bans?
4: Often it was. So that, so that first one that I spoke about, Norm Gallagher did 13, um, some say 14 days jail over that. Uh, Mick Lewis, who's still alive and fighting, Mick uh, did seven days over that. So yes, the, the, the jailings were... Relative to other unions, were, were, were sort of frequent, and then when the deregistration hit the second one. So the first one was 1974. The second one was 86. When that hit, it was um, yeah, there were hundreds of arrests and
1: a sad point. Really, though, was when John Cummins died, and his his commemoration was held at the the Regent Theatre. Yeah, and stopped the city.
4: Absolutely, yeah. That that was uh, that was a that was a, a, a A big day for all of us, wasn't it? That one, I'll never forget. That marching through the city, John's coffin, and just the um, people standing along the side, just clapping, with thousands marching with a pipe band, and yeah. And of course, every year since, we've celebrated his passing, you know, looking to the future and the future leaders coming through have sort of picked that banner up, and so you know, it's interesting to see that the, the current secretary of the CFMEU was a BLF organiser. And it just, it, you know, it says so much about resilience, the passing on of history. Not that I think we do it anywhere near enough, but there is that sense when you go into the CFMEU, there's a palpable sense of the history behind the union. Because when you walk into the new building there now, down the end of the corridor, there's a massive wall size picture of Como. And then when you go upstairs, you'll see all of the unions in construction represented, and the BLF is front and centre. And you see all the you know, photos of those very, very militant struggles around um, long service leave and you know, superannuation and sick leave. And I remember as a kid I was put in the position of actually helping to lead. Can you believe that? A, um, the, the, the gaining of the first five-day sick leave. Because we never used to have sick leave. You know, it's about 73, 74, I think. I was scaffolding and I was with this crew of older scaffolders who just, I don't know how they ever tolerated me, but they did. So I was part of that leadership team, just in there at the meetings, the picket lines every day. You know, we shut the scaffold yards down and then eventually the industry ground to a halt. And as a result of that, we won the first five days sick pay. Yeah, for young people to be involved and pulled in like that. And now I see the CFMU like I'm a retired member of the CFMU. And when you, when you go along there and you see that the second and third rank, Leadership coming through. They've sort of gathered together around a youth group now, and uh, I know the Maritime Union has a very powerful youth group as well, so the two unions are amalgamating as seeing that younger band get together and know each other, and then the young women coming into the trade. Um, Johnny Setka and uh, Sean Reardon made a statement not long ago that looking around the branch meeting, by this time next year they wanted the room half filled with women. That's the sort of atmosphere that that was around when when I was a kid that just sparked off a lifelong commitment.
1: The Green Bands tour is um, later this month. How many have you had so far?
4: That's a good question. Um, I don't know, not not that many. Probably around, I've probably done around 20, yeah, over the years. I love doing them (laughs) because uh, people just get so surprised and they're just so happy at the end of it knowing that they have, had that history that that's part of their DNA. And, uh,
1: About how many sites have you
4: got? Probably around a dozen or so yeah, just uh, so that we can walk it and so we start off at the Trades Hall and take them on a little bit of a tour there and over the road to the Eight Hour Monument just to sort of set that stage and then um, we, we drop off at Tunnam Memorial at RMIT there and then the city bars is right next door and then down to meet with the stallholders and traders, because the blue's still on about saving the pink market, so that gives them a bit of an idea of how a, you know how a green band can can happen, and then we head off down through the city, see all the buildings that so we head off about three o'clock from Trades hall, and that means we can usually get into most of the buildings
1: and that's on a Friday.
4: <laughs> yeah, do it on a friday, it's a good way for people to finish their week and
1: you must also mention the fact that Joan Coxage painted many of those buildings absolutely. absolutely. And that was she was employed by the the union to do that.
4: The federal office, and and uh, and that you know if there's ever a little booklet that needs reprinting, it's because there was a little pamphlet done of her prints, of, of her uh, sketches and drawings, absolutely beautiful. Apart from anything else, but the history in that is enormous. And um I had one. I lent it. I don't know who I lent it to. So if you're out there, <laughs> please send it back. But I'll find another one. And I thought, yeah, I'll approach the unions and see if we can't, can't get it copied. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Well, if anyone wants to ever uh, uh, organise a Green Bands tour, if they contact uh, Dan musel uh, who's the Secretary of Earthworker Cooperative, yeah, Dan will contact me and he'll take all their names and that and we can meet up on a Friday and go for a walk.
1: And Friday week, how do you get onto that one?
4: Again, uh, if they contact Dan, Dan musel at, um, at Earthworker Cooperative, they'll find it online. Great. Right. Thanks, Dave. Good Thank you.
1: And that, of course, was Dave Keran, a familiar voice on 3CR over many, many years. And the address to join in the walk, which is Friday week, the 12th of October, is earthworkercooperative.com.au. And as Dave said, he's a retired CFMEU member and also BLF. And I spoke with Joan today, And Joan has a copy of the booklet, and in a couple of weeks' time, she's going to do some photocopying, and make Dave happy.
5: It's now 4.32. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is on again. See the impact of climate change and meet heroes fighting for justice. Witness the beauty of nature and hear the sounds of our world. Meet the filmmakers and experts inspiring change and join the conversation to create a sustainable future. Face the facts. Face the future. Face the films. The Environmental Film Festival Australia in Melbourne from October the 11th to the 19th. Tickets at effa.org.au A 3CR supporter.
1: I'm speaking now with Gabby Alemane, who is the only Western Saharan living here in Melbourne, for an update on events affecting the people in the occupied territories and also in the camps in Algeria. Peace talks for Western Sahara and involving Morocco and a few other countries. What's the latest that you know of?
6: Thank you for having me again. Yes. Yeah, there are some talks will take place in December. Uh, the UN envoy Horst Köhler, he was a former president of Germany. He sent um, requests to Polisario Front and Morocco and to Algeria and Mauritania to come to the talks that will take place in December, the beginning of December, in Geneva.
1: Morocco doesn't like peace talks, do they?
6: Historically, they don't. They always refuse to uh, to come to the talks. I think the reason is there is a huge difference on the basis of the talks. Morocco wants the talks to be based on autonomy, whereas the Polizari Front and the Sahrawis, they want the talks to be based on referendum. And who decides what the talks are going to be on? I believe the Sahrawis should decide, because they are the people of Western Sahara, I think other parties will, will have to, to intervene like the UN and you know the major powers like the United States and the European countries.
1: And then once they get involved, that's not good for the Polisario Front and the people of Western Sahara because of that involvement because often they side with
6: Morocco. Is that the case? Yes, unfortunately the United States and the uh, major European countries like France and Spain, they back Morocco. They want the Sahrawis to, you know, you know, to just agree to the uh, autonomy. Whereas the Sahrawi themselves, the Sahrawis and the Polisario Front, we want the referendum. We want to be given chance to vote and decide our future. Western Sahara is the only colony still in Africa. Yes, unfortunately, it's the last colony in Africa, and it's so sad because all the other countries they had chance to vote and they had chance to rebuild their country. Whereas Sahrawis, we are still waiting for that opportunity to vote and then to have our, you know, independence and start building our countries, our country and start to progress and just uh, have have our country.
1: What are the people at home saying about this
6: these peace talks? Yeah, actually, not too many Sahrawis are optimistic. People are still have they still hold the hope that someday the talks will lead to the referendum. But uh, the majority are not optimistic because um, since 1991 there were so many talks and so many negotiations, they all failed. People are not uh, optimistic at all.
1: One of the big issues still is the theft of the resources from Western Sahara by Morocco in conjunction with European countries and also Australia and New Zealand. What can you tell us about
6: negotiations on that front? Historically, like 15 countries, they have been involved in in importing the phosphate from Western Sahara. It's illegal because they are dealing with Moroccan state-owned companies. So basically, they are indirectly uh, financing the occupation of Western Sahara. Yeah, Australia was one of them, uh, the United States, New Zealand. And the good news is that so many countries have um, stopped importing the phosphate and the last one was uh, an American company based in Louisiana. They withdraw their import. Now there are two major companies in New Zealand, farmer companies. They still uh, import phosphate from Western Sahara and they basically they are just helping Moroccans to stay in Western Sahara, agreeing indirectly to the human rights violations and everything that takes place in Western Sahara.
1: I'm sure that they realise that there is a great deal of opposition and the people of Western Sahara are opposed. Are you aware of any or what negotiations are going on to talk to these companies and saying,
6: you've got alternatives, why do you keep on doing this? The Western Sahara resource watch which is doing a great job at monitoring what companies import from Western Sahara and all these activities. And, uh, you know, there is a Polisari front and the Polisari representative, and everybody is working really hard to convince these companies to stop importing from um, Western Sahara. But on the other side also, Morocco has been very active, especially recently. They sent uh, a mission to New Zealand to advocate for these activities. But we are still hopeful. I personally am still hopeful that uh, in New Zealand, the government especially, because the government supports independence and self-determination. So I think they should play a role on convincing the companies to stop importing the phosphate. What's happening about the Australian companies? Yeah, yeah. the one I am aware of, I am aware of is Incitec Pivot. They haven't imported since the last year. We always attend their annual general meeting, Yeah, so they have stopped. They haven't made any, I think they haven't made any declaration or or any statement. But so far, they haven't made any imports from Western Sahara. I know it's a finite
1: resource, but is there any knowledge of how much phosphate is actually left in Western Sahara? Because that's a resource that when you do get independence,
6: that will be a money earner for you, not Morocco. It's actually very rare rock. Very precious. And that's why the the companies have difficulty finding subsidy for this specific rock. It's really huge amount. amount. So
1: even if they stop today, there'd still be a resource for a liberated Western Sahara?
6: Yeah, there should be in Bukhra. Yeah, so the main thing is that they should stop so that Morocco can stop the occupation or at least Morocco can come to talks.
1: And are they labelling this phosphate as Moroccan rather than th- that it's coming from Western Sahara? Is that another problem?
6: Yes. So I think one of the problems is these companies, when they argue is that they are actually buying from a Moroccan company. They are not buying from Western Sahara. The issue is this company is owned by the state. So basically it's it's just the occupation. Yes, it's just the, the financial Part of the occupation, not the political. But still, the Sahrawis, we didn't give any consent uh, for Morocco to, to import from our country, our land. They are taking the, the resources and the money that they are giving it to Morocco, not the, to the Sahrawis, the native of the country.
1: What about the fisheries and how extensive and important are the fisheries off the coast of Western Sahara?
6: Yes, yes. So Western Sahara is very rich in fish and uh, minerals. And we have a really long coastal line, very beautiful coastal line. Yeah, so there is a a fishery agreement between Morocco and the European Union. The European Court of Justice has ruled that these fishery agreements should not include the waters of Western Sahara. However, European countries, they still want to do the agreement. So they are trying to overlook the European Court of Justice. However, I, I'm aware that the police are from, they have a case. They started a case to stop this agreement. That's with the mm. French company? In France, yep. Yeah. They, they started the, the process. How
1: important is fish or was fish in the, the diet of the people of Western Sahara? I'd
6: imagine it would have been very important. Fish is very important. Yeah, so is by nature, they are nomads. So they used, before, they used to rely on, like, the animals. However, Sahrawis who live close to the coast, they depend on the fish for their you know nutrition, for trade, so basically for everything.
1: And I'd imagine being under occupation that the the life of the nomad has changed dramatically.
6: Yes, with also with the drought, so there are no more camels and um, sheep and goats. Now it's one of the sources for income is the fish and fishing.
1: Are Western Saharan fishers allowed to go out into the ocean and fish, or are they stopped by Moroccan officials?
6: According to the news that I read, um, only 5% of the fishing license are granted to Sahrawis, and the 95% is granted to Moroccan companies or Moroccans. There are Sahrawis also who back Morocco. These people are usually the ones who benefit from the, the license, licenses for fishing.
1: And is there a worry about overfishing as well, that they will deplete the stocks of fishing?
6: Yes, definitely. And uh, the problem is if the money that is coming from the fishing is going to the Sahrawis and going to build Western Sahara, that's a good thing. However, what's happening is that Morocco come and take the fish and take the resources and take the money.
1: Are they still growing vegetables in parts of Western Sahara which are also being exported overseas? I was thinking of tomatoes. I remember Kate talking about tomatoes a while ago.
6: Yes. So if, if you heard Sahara, you think that it's simply desert. But uh, actually in Western Sahara we have desert and we also have some beautiful land and beautiful landscapes. So yeah, there are some, some vegetables. Not so many, but there are. But the people yeah. don't benefit from it. They a lot of it goes overseas, is that what you're saying? Yes, yeah. Unfortunately, the natives, they don't benefit. Instead, actually, they are being suppressed. So basically, my idea is that Morocco wants the land, but not the people. So they are trying, they brought a lot of settlers, and they are trying to get rid of the Sahrawis, the natives. So there are no job opportunities, no education, very poor health care, no opportunity for growth. No activities, no, no programs for the youth, you know, to grow and to to create something.
1: And human rights abuses are well
6: known. Yes, that's actually one of the reasons I believe the the phosphate importing companies have withdrawn their imports because there is a huge issue with uh, with the human rights violation. And just last week, Sahrawis they they protested and they were. The police, you know, try to um, heed them and uh, put some of them in, in jail. So there is an there is issue with human rights violation.
1: And many people are in jail, and often they're taken
6: out of the country
1: into jails in Morocco, another country.
6: Yes, and some of them, they just disappear. They never come back. A lot of women are raped, children are killed, students are killed. So basically if you... If you express your opinion or if you go and participate in activities or raise the Sahrawi flag, that's it. You are like under the radar and you will be followed. Your family will be, um, you know, will be harassed, even uh, kidnapped. And some Sahrawis, they actually have to flee the Western Sahara as a whole and go to Europe. And still they are not allowed to come back. And their families are, you know, being arrested. I know one case. The family gets arrested, the family is being, um, you know, they practice racism. So the, the family doesn't get any education, the family doesn't get any health care, the family doesn't get um, not even simple food or anything.
1: How difficult is it to get information out of the occupied territory? I know most of it would come through the internet, but do they closely monitor the internet to find out what people are sending out? they do so they you have to be do. very careful of what you say or
6: yes yes so morocco a uh, moroccan government i don't want to say morocco because i do respect the people they are our neighbors at the government um, they monitor all the activities not only the activities done by the Sahrawis, even europeans who come to visit western sahara mm-hmm. they are being deported at the airport some of them are not even allowed to go to go to Lyon the capital city of western Sahara yeah they monitor everything and they try to to prevent the information from getting to the outside world uh, the Sahrawis they are doing a really good job they send videos they try to um, send letters pictures to the you know the other Sahrawis who are let's say in Algeria or elsewhere so that's how we get the information
1: how do they get the videos through the censorship?
6: Yeah, there is this group that's called Equip Media. It's a group of youth, a group of young Sahrawis. And what they do is, uh, they cannot really record any video in public. They would stand on top of the houses and make a hole, dig a hole, and, uh, and record videos. They try very hard to, um, to document in human rights violation done by Morocco. These young people, what they are doing is one of the things that we rely on as people to show the world our struggle and to show to the other, you know, to the international community what these people are going through in the occupied Western Sahara.
1: I could imagine the punishment they would get if they were found out.
6: Yeah, usually the Moroccan government usually put them in jail and that we have a lot of young people who are in jail for expressing their opinion or for engaging in demonstrations or anything that is a, that um, advocate for the independence of Western Sahara. Not only that, but they also they take their families, they attack their families, their siblings. Sometimes they break their houses, they um, fire them from their jobs, they stop them from education. Actually, yeah, the Palestinian struggle is very similar to the Sahrawi struggle. Very similar because uh, we have very limited resources. Just like Palestinians. Palestinians, you see them throwing rocks at the Sahrawis too. We are very peaceful people. We don't have guns. So basically, we don't even throw stones or rocks. We just express our opinion. People go and do demonstrations. They raise the Sahrawi flag. That's enough. It, just expressing your opinion. Morocco, you know, is a very advanced country in, like, military. Police come with the guns, like, all kind of weapons.
1: Are you aware if this is a situation in Morocco itself where the people are repressed by the police and military?
6: Yes. I have friends who are Moroccans, and I like them very much. Um, yeah, they tell me about the reef, which is... um. This part of Morocco that is against the kingdom or the mahzen, what they call the mahzen. And they get, they get oppressed. They're just like us. Same thing also. And they are being discriminated against. The language is not recognized. Like if you don't fit into Moroccan, you know, way of sit, being citizen, you're going to be, you know, killed or you're going to be tortured or you will face all this kind of discrimination. Yeah. My friend, uh, told me he's Moroccan. Morocco like 100% and he told me that he's not when he when he went to Morocco he said he wasn't even, he didn't have the courage to say that he has a Sahrawi friend because if he says that publicly he will be persecuted. Some people
1: from Europe and Australia do manage to get into the occupied territories but I can imagine that they're closely watched while they're there and there are only certain places they're allowed to visit, is that correct?
6: Yeah, so Morocco has a long history not allowing foreigners to come and visit Western Sahara. Even when they come to visit, they are only given limited time and they, they are giving limited, you know, places where they can go and people they, they can meet. And basically this is to prevent the truth from getting out and to um, cover the, the human rights violations in there. But there are some journalists and some people who managed to go there and meet with the, the Codessa. kodessa is um the a group in western sahara that is fighting against morocco and for the independence of western sahara some of them actually they get deported at the airport of Lyon.
1: are you aware of what it was like when horse Kola from the un went there because he's the he's the envoy of the secretary general of the united nations Has he also got restrictions on him
6: yes i heard that yes there were some restrictions and uh so when he was coming, the Sahrawis usually gather. They usually, you know, do make announcements and let's gather, let's do do a demonstration and show that, you know, we don't we don't want Morocco to stay here. So what happened is the day before he came, the whole city, especially Laayoune, was like it was filled of, Sahara, of uh, Moroccan gendarmerie and Moroccan forces, and therefore the Sahrawis were not. Allowed to do any demonstration or anything, but he met he met with Sahrawis and people who represent the Sahrawi community there. He also was met with the Sahrawis who back Morocco and who want the autonomy. There are not too many, but there are a few of them. There's a price they pay if they do meet with someone like that. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes, yes. There is this uh, this lady. She is called Sultana Khayya, She's the one known in Western Sahara for fighting against Morocco. And she lost her eye during one of the confrontations. So, yeah, and there is also I mean, Haidar, the ex-prisoner. So what happened is they just target this person. For example, if they go, let's say, to any European country, when they come back, they target them, They um, they make sure that they don't live in peace and they monitor their activities. Sometimes they come and they... You know, they destroy their houses, their properties and stuff like that. And I imagine that women get a harsher treatment than the men. All the Sahrawi ladies who went to jail, they all talk about how they were raped by multiple men. Basically, because also we are an Islamic society, usually women get worst punishment. Not even for her opinion, but also for being a lady and for speaking up. And the Sahrawi women are very good at speaking up and very good at, um, you know, expressing their opinion and not afraid of, you know, going to demonstration or talking about, um, you know, about the illegal activities that Morocco is doing in Western Sahara. So, yeah, they get, yeah, rape. Some of them, they get they're killed. Sometimes their children, their parents.
1: Finally, Gabby, what's the latest news from the camps where your family... Uh-huh.
6: Yeah, so the latest news, uh, people are doing demonstrations to ask the New Zealand companies to stop importing the phosphate, to stop financing and helping Morocco to stay in Western Sahara. And one of the things that are going on, the other thing is um, also the, there are a lot of human rights violations in Western Sahara. We see the news, we see the photos, we see the videos, and it makes everybody sad. But we are hopeful that uh, the talks that will take place in December will you know will finish this conflict and bring peace to the play, to the to our country and our, you know, region.
1: And thanks to Gabby Alamin, who as I said before is the, the only Western Sahara person living in Melbourne, of course there are some in Sydney, but um her great friends are the people at the Australian Western Sahara. Association, if you'd like to get in touch with them, you can do it through their webpage or Facebook, Australian Western Sahara Association. It's four minutes to five o'clock, and this is Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. Friends of the
3: Earth's
1: Walk This Way is that. Join us on Saturday, October 13th on a sponsored walk of Melbourne's beautiful Bayside Tracks to launch our new Waste and Consumption campaign and take action on climate change. Together, we'll walk 15 kilometres and raise $20,000 for Friends of the Earth. We will be highlighting key issues around climate resilience, rising sea levels and plastic pollution in our oceans. Getting involved is simple. Sign up online at walkthisway.org.au, get sponsored, spread the word and get walking. Join us as we journey through coastal communities who are most vulnerable to the impact of climate change. We'll finish up with a community picnic in the Katarni Gardens in St Kilda. Friends of the Earth is a proud supporter of CTR. Dr Tim Anderson returned last week from his yearly visit to the Middle East, this time to Syria and Lebanon. Focus first on the province of Idlib, northwestern Syria. I'd like to read the first paragraph of an article in the Age recently headed "Making a Desert, Calling It Peace" by Nick O'Malley, which is symptomatic of most of the mainstream media. The pending bloodletting in Syria may only be the end of the beginning. In the last rebel-held enclave in Syria. The province of Idlib, along Turkey's southern border, up to 3 million people, mostly civilians, are bracing for an attack by regime forces, which they expect to be particularly savage. An aerial bombardment has already begun, and Syrian troops loyal to President Bashar al-Assad, many of whom conscripted for the fight, have been massing along the province's borders for weeks. Assad's forces are supported by Iran and Russia, which has deployed a fleet of 15 warships, including a missile cruiser and two missile-carrying submarines. Tim, can you just remind us who the people are that are in that last stronghold, as they say, of rebels?
7: As the Syrian army has been taking back Syria from the Western-backed armed groups, there was a a sort of a two-step process going on where when they liberated an area, there was fighting, the military would gain the upper hand and then they would offer fairly wide-scale amnesties to any Syrians, not foreigners, but Syrians who were prepared, who hadn't been implicated in major crimes and who were prepared to return to normal life under certain conditions. And the ones who refused that were sent on these proverbial green buses to Idlib became a sort of a dumping ground for those that refused refuse who surrendered but refused to engage in a, a process that sort of led to them going back to normal life. Idlib, on the border of Turkey in, in north, um, northwestern Syria, was, I suppose, a receptacle for a lot of those, the hardline fighters who wouldn't uh, change their ways, basically, but were defeated the problem is a very large number of fighters been accumulating there a lot of the civilian population had left some time earlier because the major invasions into syria by foreign jihadists were coming precisely coming through idlib when they invaded aleppo for example six years ago it was through idlib and the turkish um, government sent in reinforcements in 2015 when it seemed like the, the, the syria was getting the upper hand and So there were new waves of foreign jihadist al-Qaeda groups coming in through Idlib from Turkey, basically. So after the major areas had been recovered, after the Syrians and their allies had defeated ISIS-Dash in the east and the al-Nusra groups in the west, they have turned their attention to Idlib. And so it was going to be an operation like all of the rest of them, basically. They would encircle the area, set up humanitarian corridors to get the... Civilians that didn't want to be there out, and then gradually increase the pressure and again force surrenders or engage with those who were going to fight to the death, basically. That was all set up to happen just recently, really, but then there were some high level political negotiations which stalled that off.
1: I'm not up on warfare, but is that normal when a, a section of a, the fighters are defeated that they're allowed to go to sort of a safe haven like that?
7: No, it's not traditional sort of tactic i mean traditional warfare tactic is to destroy people completely if they refuse to surrender that's what the u.s has done in its wars basically that the u.s has carried out the infamous scorched earth policy where they would destroy entire villages in vietnam to, to save them as the cliche goes you know so it was an unusual thing and it was something that was done really because the syrian army was fighting contrary to the western propaganda a far more measured war than foreign invaders have. After all, this is their own country. Um, A lot of the fighters there are Syrian, even if there's large numbers of foreigners, and a lot of the military commanders and so on are foreigners. So the idea from the strategy of the government and the president, Bashar al-Assad, was basically to look forward to what they've always called a Masalahar process, a reconciliation process after a war, which does involve significant numbers of local mercenaries or fanatical jihadists, uh, or, you know, as the West says, opposition people, but who've taken up arms against the government, um, how do you deal with the, the bitterness of a war afterwards? And the idea was to not have a scorched earth policy and to try and minimise all of the, the civilian casualties there. So in virtually every case, you would not have had, for example, al-Qaeda-occupied areas of a western country for years and years they would simply go in and and destroy the entire area basically um you know we've seen examples of the u.s. doing that within the u.s. when they had some remember the branch davidians who they just went in and bombed and killed everyone men women and children there, holding out against the uh, the u.s. security forces so that didn't happen in the areas like east ghouta and uh, east aleppo and so on there was some more measured process of war going on there where People were evacuated rather than being slaughtered in mass, and with the, all the risk that involved of you know fights to the death going on in in urban areas. Remember, most of this warfare has been in in urban areas. So in Idlib, the same process was about to happen. Once again, the the there was a huge sort of campaign from the Western backers of the Al Qaeda groups. Amongst other things, they gave the numbers wrongly. I think um, the the story going uh, a month or so back was that. Uh, from the Western media, was that there were 10,000 fighters and 3 million people. That was completely wrong. The estimates in Syria were more like that there was at least 50,000 fighters, anything from 50,000 to 100,000, but I think the estimates were coming down to between 50 and 80,000. Now some of the Western estimates are coming up to 30,000 or more. Counting all the people that have actually gone from when Aleppo was liberated, when East Iskutu was liberated and so on, and the civilian population, or the, sorry, the overall population between seven hundred and eight hundred thousand. 800,000. So it was quite a different ratio that I was hearing in Syria last month, for example, compared to the Western media reports.
1: And who would be, who was servicing these fighters, and I'd imagine they had their families with them?
7: Yeah, so if you've got, for example, 50,000 fighters, you're likely to have three to four times that number of people, including their families. And a number of them have got several wives, by the way. Um, a number of them left behind children without fathers in many parts of Syria. I was seeing that just last month in, in the East Ghouta, for example. A lot of a lot of children without fathers there. In Idlib, yeah, you would have had a very large number once you include their families, basically. Although the fighting is, um, there's a type of a, a lull, a type of a ceasefire there at the moment, there are still significant numbers of civilians coming out by the way just the other day there was a report of 450 in one day coming out through the Abu Dhu corridor mainly young people that wanted to go to college in Hama in the in the, sta- uh, in the province to the south of Idlib at the start of the academic year in in September basically so there is still a flow of people coming out of coming out of Idlib
1: as I said who supplies them with food and ammunition and health care
7: Turkey has been the major supplier of arm. Um, Idlib is a farming area; it's got its own production of food and so on. It's not a huge province, but been a very fertile province. It's just that over the years, uh, the population has depleted because there's been such strong control of the Al Qaeda groups coming in from Turkey to go towards Hama and Idlib and uh, Hama and, and Aleppo and other parts of Syria, for example. So it has its own internal economy to a degree. I believe what I've heard recently is that there is actually quite a lot of money in Idlib from the the Western sponsors of of these groups. You know, many of the European countries and the US as well as Turkey have funded and armed these groups and the Saudis, of course, have been very important. There's been a lot of money um, coming into those areas, but then the commodities are relatively scarce and so... Uh, A number of the people coming out of Idlib today are also looking in Syria for commodities that are cheaper, because in in Syria you've got, for example, subsidised bread and other commodities at reasonable prices, because salaries in Syria are very low. The war economy has suffered a lot. The the Western sanctions have strangled the Syrian economy, and the Syrian people are are still suffering that, but one consequence is that a lot of basic commodities have been kept very low by the government, basically. So there's money in Idlib, but <clears throat> the commodities are, are scarcer. It's a different sort of economy. You saw the same thing with East Ghouta, with a lot of money coming in for the salaries of the jihadists. That There was quite an influx of, um, they, were, they were estimating a year or two ago that something like $250 million was coming into the East Ghouta from Saudi Arabia, just paying the salaries and expenses of their various, the various sponsored jihadist groups there, too. Uh, healthcare, those sorts of things. Uh, different. There's been some Western groups, including MSS, Médecins en Frontier, that group, which has had, a, has had no people really on the ground in recent years, but they have sent money in regularly to areas controlled by the jihadist groups, and their information has also been coming from those groups, like al Islam in the East Ghouta, for example, or Faylak al-Rahman, or Jabhat al-Nusra, they, even though that's a banned, uh, the last one's a banned terrorist group internationally. So there has been money coming in from a number of Western agencies because they've been saying these are moderate rebels and the opposition and so on, and they've they've played down the fact that really money uh, for, uh, for example, and the clinics that basically have been used, the primary purpose has been as war clinics for the fighters. Basically, uh, to some smaller extent, their families and some other people have got some sort of medical assistance. So there's a, it's a totally upside down type of situation. There are, there are no normal schools in Idlib, for example. I was in the East Ghouta last month and I saw a number of schools reopening with thousands of children you know, going to school. In other words, their parents were sending them to school for the first time in many, many years. The first time in the lives of most of the, the primary school students, for example. So that's the case in Idlib. The only real schools operating in the Jihadist Hill areas are little madrasa classes for children in Saudi-type religion, basically.
1: Talk a little bit more about the agreement between Russia and Turkey and how long that agreement's likely to take or stand.
7: Yeah. Everyone believes, I think, that it's a temporary agreement. The major sticking point in Idlib in was not just the scale of the number of jihadists, tens of thousands of, of jihadists there, the people who were perhaps more likely to fight to the death, but on the other hand there were numbers of them escaping through the north into turkey back into europe for example a lot of these fighters have gone into back into europe and claimed to be refugees but the turkish army itself was had established posts in idlib under the guise of like the u.s under the guise of you know being some mentor or, or a mentor of, of peace in the area pretending that there were although there was infighting between the groups but pretending that there were moderate groups there compared to the extremists and so on, the Turkish army itself had established a significant presence in Idlib itself, and the risk then was that the Syrians backed by the Russians and Iran were going to go in there and not just do what they'd been doing in other provinces with cleaning out the, the jihadist groups but come into direct conflict with the army of, of, a, of a major state, Turkey. So that was the the major sticking point there. Could there be escalation between Syria and Turkey and, and Syria and Russia and Turkey, for example? And as you probably know, Russia has been brokering some type of diplomatic and commercial strategic relationship with Turkey and with Iran, basically, because there haven't been normal diplomatic relationships between Syria and Turkey for some time. You know, the Syrian president thinks the Turkish president's mad and won't talk to him. That agreement was really to stall off the the imminent military operation. It was going to happen last month. It didn't. There was a deadline. The, the jihadist groups had set up false flag, chemical weapons stunts. They were going to call as soon as there was a significant army advance on their holdouts in Idlib. And so the leaders of Russia and Turkey got together in Sochi and came to an agreement that buying time for Turkey to try and extract whatever proxy groups it had there, on the basis that Turkey was going to assist in demilitarization of certain parts of Idlib, that is to say create a buffer zone around that province which is sort of surrounded by Turkey and then with three Syrian provinces on the other side, Latakia hama and aleppo create a 15 to 20 kilometer buffer zone so that the the groups couldn't fire rockets and mortars and so on into the civilian surrounding areas and open up the major roads between aleppo and hama and aleppo and latakia which are two major roads the m4 and the m5 passing directly through Idlib. a lot of people looking at this say Given uh, President Erdogan's commitment to those jihadist groups to try and gain some influence and perhaps excise a part of Syria for his own state, that Erdogan was unlikely to seriously act against these groups that that he basically supported for so long. On the other hand, uh, Erdogan, Erdogan was being put to the test, saying that you know if you you know are trying to claim you're there trying to eliminate extremists and so on, then some part in it the syrians accepted that deal uh, on the basis that it was going to save the lives of syrian soldiers who would otherwise be going into fight in idlib and if indeed they could create a buffer zone open some of the major roads going through idlib that would be without the syrian army having to do it without syrian soldiers being killed in the process of doing it every time every time one of the areas was liberated in doha or in in yarmouk or in the east Ghouta, there would be hundreds and hundreds of young Syrian soldiers killed in the process of doing that that the Syrians were winning but they were losing a lot of lives in doing it so there's a sense I think in Syria that they've accepted this uh, while they want to liberate every part of the country that's occupied including including the parts occupied by the US and and Turkish forces they are prepared to have a delay to see if the Russia-Turkey agreement can actually achieve some sort of Gains, that is to say, the buffer zone, so that the jihadists can't keep firing rockets into Latakia or into Aleppo or into Hama, for example. There's been some serious violence around the border, even though the area's been contained for some time by, by Syrian forces. Some deadlines, they put some dates on that in this month and into December, for example, so if there's no serious progress there, if there's no initiative or political will taken by President Erdogan, when I believe that there will be a, a plan B to because the Syrians are very determined to liberate, as the President said, every inch of Syria.
1: As you said just before you did go to East Ghouta. how long was that place under the control of the jihadists, and what did the people tell you about life was like in those six years?
7: It was um, about six years from two thousand and twelve. middle of 2012 to april this year in april this year all of the east ghouta including duma the, the major city in the north part of the east ghouta was liberated since then i was there last month which was five months after that liberation there's been a gradual sort of restoration of normal life there's still a lot of destruction in a lot of the cities there but as in a lot of parts of syria media often shows you destruction they don't show everyday life that goes on whenever I go to those places whether it's Aleppo or Derizur or, or East Guta I always look at everyday life and how it is how it is going on if it is and to what extent it's coming back so in some of the, uh, the smaller towns of, of the East Guta like Maleha and Aintama and Kafabatna for example you can see areas of destruction but you can see areas let's say in Maleha, where Shops are being reopened and there are new businesses selling solar panel systems and doors and red water tanks are being set up. I think Oxfam's involved in that program. The government will bulldoze the road. They'll put in electricity. The red water tanks will go on and schools will open. Schools were reopening was one of the major features when I was there last month, basically, in both in the south and the north of the region.
1: You've been listening to Dr Tim Anderson from the... School of Political Economy at Sydney University and a member of Hands Off Syria. And we'll hear more from Tim on the program next week about his
5: visit to Syria. Join us for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at The Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. is free. Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary Launch. The Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm. See you there. 3CR
3: supporter.
1: I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply
5: irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855, and what is relevant is that you're not listening to that
1: other crap. So well done. And now the second part of my interview. The first was played last week with Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher who attended the Pacific Forum meeting in Nauru. How was China represented there?
8: China had a big delegation headed by a special envoy for the Pacific Islands Forum Dialogue. Um, Each year, as well as the 18 member countries of the forum, they have what's called a dialogue session where they talk to their affiliated partners. Um, And that's everyone, the Americans, uh, the European Union, France, Japan, China, the big players like that, down to smaller countries like Italy, Thailand and so on. Countries that have relationships with the forum as a regional body. They hold a, a dialogue summit. The real complication this year was, however, that Nauru, the host country, is aligned with Taiwan and not China. Taiwan has a small but shrinking group of countries that recognise it diplomatically. There's only about 19 countries in the world. In Europe, for example, only the Holy See, the Vatican, recognises Taiwan. Everyone else recognises the People's Republic of China. In Africa, it's the same. Most countries recognise China rather than Taiwan. But it's small island states in the Caribbean and the Pacific, a few Central American states, that recognise Taiwan, and Nauru's one of them. So President Wonga, Baron Wonga, the head of the government of Nauru, spent some period before the forum dicking the Chinese around by refusing to give them uh, the visas that they sought. Each year, countries have to apply for visas, obviously, to go to another country. Um, And Nauru said, well, you can't use diplomatic passports. We don't have diplomatic relations with you, so you have to use personal passports to come. The Chinese took offence at this snub from the Nauruans, and there was hot words. And indeed, the outgoing forum chair, Tui Lapa of Samoa, wrote a sternly worded letter to Nauru to say, don't bring this fight into our regional meeting. We have an agenda that's you know, full of issues that are our Pacific priorities around oceans, around climate, around development. Uh, we don't need these sort of games being brought into the forum. But it continued on during the week. And indeed, there was a, a major diplomatic incident during the dialogue session where Forum Chair, Nauru President Wonga, was uh, giving the call to various people in this meeting. 18 members of the forum, 18 dialogue partners, all in this huge conference centre, ironically built by Taiwan, <laughs> rather than China. The Taiwanese are not in the room. They're not a dialogue partner because Pacific countries recognise China as the dialogue partner. The Chinese envoy then, angry that he wasn't given the call, stood up, yelled, stormed around the room and eventually walked out, causing, uh, you know, uh, it was a bit of a diplomatic signal to Nauru that, you know, you can say all you like about Taiwan, but we're a big player. And this causes problems for the, the, the forum where Nauru is pledging to um, take the issue to the UN and to make a scene about it whenever President Wonga speaks on the international stage. But the forum members are anxious if Nauru wants to do that on its own part, fine. But if they do that on behalf of the forum, speaking in the name of the forum, which is a collective body with 18 members, um, that's going to cause some problems. This whole issue continues because next year's host of the forum is Tuvalu. And Tuvalu is also one of the six Pacific members that recognises Taiwan. So um, I interviewed uh, Dame Meg Taylor, the forum secretary general, and she was frankly pissed off at the whole issue that this kept disrupting what is a space for Pacific countries to talk about their priorities, their agenda, their concerns. They want the big countries to listen, not to lecture them.
1: Before the next meeting, there's going to be two referendums in the Pacific. There's going to be Bougainville hopefully in June next year and New Caledonia in a month or so. Was those referendums talked about?
8: Not much. Bougainville certainly not. And uh, Peter O'Neill's absence, uh, you know, it's a big issue for Papua New Guinea that uh, one of their... You know, largest provinces and indeed a, a site that historically used to provide a huge proportion of PNG's budget, going back to the before the conflict erupted in Bougainville during the 1990s. During the 70s and 80s, the Panguna gold and copper mine on Bougainville generated about 17% of the revenues for PNG's budget. About 40% of PNG's export earnings came from the one mine. And when that mine was closed during the period of the Bougainville Revolutionary Army, the armed conflict with the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, that obviously the PNG budget took a hit. They've had enormous success relatively with uh, LNG, oil and gas out of the highlands and so on, but Panguna is still an incredible resource. And so the issue of self-determination scares a lot of governments, and particularly the government beginning with capital A, Um, They don't want to talk about self-determination because it's an issue across Melanesia. The obvious question is, of course, West Papua as well. Most forum island governments and forum member governments, Australia and New Zealand, recognise Indonesian sovereignty over what they call the two provinces of Papua and West Papua. They are happy to dialogue with Indonesia over human rights abuses, concerned about ongoing police repression of people in West Papua, but the the official collective forum position is, that they recognise Indonesian sovereignty. Now as we know the West Papua Nationalist movements, clamouring for independence Um, it's a rising rather than shrinking uh, uh, movement. The United Liberation Movement of West Papua which is an umbrella body for West Papua Nationalist groups, is very active on the diplomatic scene. Benny Wender, the president of that group and Jacob Rumbiak and others were represented in Nauru with the Vanuatu delegation Vanuatu is going to take the issue of West Papua and self-determination to the UN General Assembly next year. I interviewed uh, Ralph Vanu, the Vanuatu Foreign Minister, and they were briefing forum member governments on this question. They know that Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, to a certain extent Fiji, are not going to budge on their support for Indonesia. PNG obviously concerned about Bougainville coming onto the agenda in future years, so they don't want self-determination on the regional agenda, on the forum agenda. So there's this uneasy consensus. But Over time, West Papua is picking up support, not just from long-standing supporters like Vanuatu, but other island states, Tuvalu, Nauru, Marshall Islands, Tonga and others, will back the resolution at the UN General Assembly next year. And Vanuatu is looking much broader to the non-aligned movement, to the European Union, uh, to the Asian group of the uh, United Nations, to many African Union countries and so on. And it's a serious push that there will be a resolution. And we've had precedent for this for relisting countries with the UN Special Committee on Decolonisation through the General Assembly. In 2013, Nauru, Tuvalu, and Solomon Islands put up a resolution to the UN, calling for French Polynesia to be relisted with the UN Special Committee. Um, New Caledonia was relisted with the UN back in 1986 during the at the height of the armed conflict. French Polynesia, another French dependency in the region, the Maui independence movement was seeking that support from the region, and that occurred. Acclamation by acclamation, the UN General Assembly accepted French Polynesia's reinscription in 2013 to the anger and fury of the French government that denounced these small island states for the temerity of challenging them. And I think we're going to see the same thing, that these small island states are going to stand up for West Papua. Bougainville, there's a silence. For Australia and PNG it's a huge issue, huge strategic issue and it's just not on the forum agenda publicly. But with New Caledonia moving to a vote um, in five weeks time uh, with Bougainville, if not June next year, certainly before June 2020 there'll be a referendum where most Bougainvillians will vote yes but then the PNG Parliament has to decide. It's not the, There'll be automatic independence after a yes vote. It has to go to the PNG Parliament and Current standings are that people in the parliament will say no, at which point there'll be a significant political crisis because the Bougainvillians want independence and PNG saying no. What happens then will be a major strategic challenge for Australia, for New Zealand, for the Forum, obviously for all of our island neighbours.
1: What about New Caledonia? Are they facing a similar situation with France?
8: Yeah, it's tricky because the Kanak population, the indigenous population of in New Caledonia, has been made a minority. It's only about 40% of the population, 39% of the population, after generations of migration. I'm going back to colonial settlement, to the prisoners and indentured labourers who came uh, to more recent waves of migration from France and from other French uh, dependencies around the world. The NMEA Accord, this agreement signed in 1998, set out a 20-year transition towards self-determination and a referendum. Well, 1998 plus 20 years, this year. And in March this year, it was agreed that the referendum would be held on the 4th of November um, with the question, do you want New Caledonia to accede to full sovereignty and become independent? That question will be uh, voted on by about 170,000 people. Voting's not compulsory at the moment, so there's a big campaign underway now and will ramp up over the next month or so. In the lead up to November with both supporters and opponents of independence seeking to rally their troops and get out the vote. And I'll be reporting from next week from New Caledonia right through the electoral campaign. So um, listen into to uh, Tuesday home time in coming weeks uh, because uh, there'll be an opportunity to talk more about what's happening on the ground.
1: How would you sum up this forum, Nick?
8: At one level, it's, you know, there's a bit of routine about this. In some ways, these meetings are a circus. There's so many things happening. There's side events, there's press conferences, there's presentations by bodies like the International Seabed Authority. You know, the Americans wanted a private breakfast with the leaders. They didn't want to say what they wanted to say in public, so they had things. You know, for journalists there, it's like 18 hour days. We ran all week trying to keep track of all the things that are happening. And like all big meetings, some of the stuff happens in the public sessions, but a lot of the work happens in the corridors. So you've got to try and work out what's going on there. I think people will remember this meeting for a few reasons. The boy declaration is a significant declaration. The forum secretariat has to go away now and draw up an action plan by November about how to implement this. And that's going to be challenging where the largest donors, United States, France, Australia and so on, don't want to do climate and security, yet Pacific Island countries are saying that's our signal priority together with work on the oceans, on maritime boundaries, on fisheries and uh, our agenda. That's going to be a real challenge as to whether the resources, the technical assistance, the follow the money, will the money flow into that area of security or will it be maintained in traditional stuff around cyber security, around anti-terrorism, around law enforcement, around frankly, keeping China at bay, which is, as we know, the core agenda coming out of Canberra. That's going to be interesting. And we'll look back at this meeting as a significant turning point in that debate between security and whose definition of security. I think the other significant element of it was, and we haven't talked about it, is about Nauru and really the medium-term crisis in Nauru because of its hosting of the offshore processing centre. I was really sad in Nauru. I met a lot of refugees, interviewed a number. I have an article on Inside Story uh, people might like to look at where I, I talk about the impact not only on the, the asylum seekers and refugees, but also on Nauruans and what it means for ordinary people in Nauru to have hundreds of people, in the past thousands of people, on their island. The refugees and asylum seekers that I spoke to want to get off. All of the people I spoke to and interviewed didn't want to stay on Nauru. They were looking for resettlement to other countries. As we know, the United States has offered to take up to 1,250 people. The Obama administration did a deal with Malcolm Turnbull, but neither Turnbull nor Obama are there now. Um, It's in the hands of Donald Trump. And I interviewed the head of the U.S. delegation, uh, Ryan Zinke, the Secretary of Interior, senior cabinet member from the Trump administration, He said that they would continue with the processing of uh, people from uh, Nauru to go to the United States, but that it would take a very long time. There was a need for security vetting, and he said that they were having problems. It was, quote, frustratingly slow doing this vetting because many of the people didn't have security clearance. They didn't have the paperwork to show that they were opponents rather than supporters of the regime in Iraq or Syria or or wherever. And so it's clear that we're talking years, not weeks, not months, that people will remain on Nauru. And yet many people have been there for four or five years or more. Many of the people I spoke to were in severe psychological distress. And it was really moving and, and troubling to see how traumatized some people were so desperate to get out. Um, New Zealand's got an offer on the table to take 150 people. That was reiterated by Prime Minister Ardern when she was in Nauru. But both the Australian and Nauruan governments, we know, don't want New Zealand to take people because the whole policy is designed to brutalise people, to serve as a deterrent for anyone who gets on a boat. You know, we've known this. We went through Pacific Solution Mark I between 2001 and 2007. The last two people of the Pacific Solution, Muhammad Sagar and Muhammad Faisal, were left by themselves on Nauru, both with refugee status, but both with adverse ASIO security rulings. And when one of the two men went, went crazy, literally, was deep psychological trauma, and it needed treatment in a mental institution that couldn't be provided by Nauru, they didn't have the psychologist and the psychiatrist to care for this man 24 hours a day, Australia was forced ultimately to take him and ASIO did another security review and decided he wasn't a threat and he ended up in Brisbane in care. This is going to happen again.
1: But it is happening now, isn't it, where people have, have gone, just falling off the edge and they're being forced to evacuate them to
8: well, they're not being evacuated to Australia, and this is the great scandal that people who come here for medical treatment can use Australian law to claim their rights under international law. We know that Peter Dutton, and indeed in, in his role as Immigration Minister, Scott Morrison, our new Prime Minister, designed the system to stop people. This is explicitly designed to take people out of Australia's systems of judicial appeal and review.
1: And he's very proud of that, isn't he?
8: Absolutely. He's got a his prime minister's got a bloody boat in his office saying I stopped the boats. Good for me. But having met people who are the human consequence of this policy, it's a brutal policy, it's a tragic policy, and it will end in tears, and we know it will end in tears, simply because we've been through this before. The tragedy this time round is that Nauru in 2011 signed the refugee convention. So Nauru now has obligations under international law to protect people, to grant asylum, and so on, we're going to see that the best and the brightest people will end up in Australia or New Zealand or America and will take people with good qualifications, the young, healthy people who can make a, a living for themselves once they get past the trauma of indefinite detention, past the mental anguish of being there, not knowing what the future's going to hold. But the people who are broken, the people who have adverse security findings, the people who have complex family situations, divided families, the people who have psychological problems, Nauru's going to be left with a small number of people at the end. And my fear is this time governments in Canberra will not take up their obligations under a national law. They say Nauru's a signatory to the Refugee Convention. Problem belong them. And I think that people in Canberra are cynical enough to do that. And it's very worrying that this is costing billions of dollars. The other problem is it's really distorting Nauru. I interviewed a senior opposition figure, uh, Matthew Batsuya. He was part of the government of Rennie Harris that introduced the scheme of offshore processing, and indeed he still supports it. He believes that Nauru can make a contribution to the global international refugee problem. We had an interesting talk about it, and he's got a very measured position on this. But he's very critical of the Wonga government. Indeed, he's been facing serious criminal charges over a protest in uh, 2015 outside the parliament and has had his whole life. You know, he's been sacked, his family have been, uh, lost jobs in government, uh, he's been punished, faced major criminal charges and serious jail time, and only just uh, since the forum, um, the Supreme Court of Nauru has ruled that there, there's a permanent stay on the trial proceeding. Nauru might appeal to that when they create a new Court of Appeals later this year. But Batsuya says this is distorting the economy of Nauru. This is causing major problems where other industries like fisheries or the remaining phosphate mining and so on is being run down. You know, the tonnage of phosphate is dropping. The capital equipment needed to keep up the mining industry is is getting ageing and so on. And that the steady flow of revenues from the reef, the offshore processing program, much of which is boomerang aid coming back to Australia, but some of which comes into Nauru, is ultimately uh, distorting the economic priorities. And one day the river of gold will end. The river of silver will stop. Nauru will face a significant economic crunch, um, according to Batsuya and the opposition. It's a, a real problem.
1: And we need to focus on those big companies that are making billions out of these... Poor people.
8: Absolutely. You know, the company Transfield a few years ago changed its name to Broad Spectrum because it was doing so much damage to the corporate brand that they were associated with this. Broad Spectrum was bought out by a Spanish company, Ferovial, and they abrogated the co- their contract when it ran out in October last year. There was a major report done by Amnesty International worth reading, called Treasure Island, showing how big corporations were benefiting from, like broad spectrum, were benefiting from the amount of money that Australia puts into this sort of process. Since then, the new contract has been taken over by Canstruct, which is, you know, a construction company. And you have this odd situation where medical and uh, other care is provided by IHMS, which is New South Wales state government, privatised Company that now provides medical services, Canstruct is running the camps, so, and there's big money in this. We were forbidden from uh, by the Nauru government from talking to staff. Most of us uh, manoeuvred around the guidelines to talk with refugees, but there were you know written guidelines, uh, media guidelines, that we weren't to talk to any of the Canstruct or, or IMH, IMHS staff on the island. This is Australia's taxes at work. And Pacific Islanders look at this at a time when the government's saying, oh, we don't have extra money for climate finance. We've cut the overseas aid budget to the lowest level ever as a proportion of gross national income since the 1970s. We're at the lowest level since 1974 when people started counting how you're reaching the target of 0.7% of gross national income towards aid. We're down at 02 at the moment, heading towards one18 We're going backwards on aid. This is the great legacy that Julie Bishop and uh, Conchetta Fieravanti wells left, lauded as great foreign minister, but on her watch, AusAid was abolished as an independent statutory authority. The aid program is at the lowest level ever. Our climate finance hasn't changed as an average per year since 2009, and yet we're spending literally billions of dollars through Australian corporations to maintain the refugee processing process. And when you go to Nauru and meet people... Now, Pacific Island leaders are are angry that the Australian media is focused just on refugees and not on the broader agenda, and it's a criticism that I agree with. Some journalists who went there from the Murdoch press weren't interested in some of the big-picture agendas that the Pacific was putting forward, and I, I think the media has some things to answer about that. But... The solution for the Nauruan and Australian government is just to stop people talking about the issue, banning journalists, banning the ABC from the forum, unprecedented in my time attending forum meetings, trying to restrict what people could talk to or talk about at these meetings. We were told that we were only there to report on the forum, we were only there to report on the forum agenda and not to do other issues, and if we were, we had to get permission from the Republic of Nauru. Well, I plead guilty that I went and interviewed the opposition leader in Nauru because I figured that I wouldn't get permission from the government to talk to him. So I went and did my job. But Australia is backing this sort of nonsense by its silence. We shouldn't be.
1: I think we all know the impact on the health workers and ancillary workers who go to places like Nauru. You've actually advised a psychiatrist not to go. Can you explain why?
8: It's a dilemma for healthcare workers who have a professional and moral obligation to do the best for their patients. But I think that the very nature of indefinite mandatory detention causes significant problems. It's not a byproduct; it is a cause. The very fact you're in an isolated situation with an indefinite sentence—you do not know how long you're going to be there—that generates psychological problems some people deal with it very well some people don't I met a young Iranian man he'd been in Nauru for more than five years I said to him do you want to go to America he said well I'd like to but I can't Donald Trump doesn't like Iran so my chances of going are not good and I said to him do you want to stay in Nauru he have got a job he was living in the community he said I don't want to stay in the camp I don't want to go crazy like these other people I want to make something of my life but he was, I said do you want to stay and he looked at me like I was mad he said no Australia, good. New Zealand, good. Anywhere, good. He wants to go elsewhere. And indeed, Nauru President Wonga said to us, we want all these people to leave. We don't want them to stay in Nauru. The question is, how long will that take? For people who go in as medical workers with a primary duty to look after people's well-being, the whole system is designed to cause trauma to people. There's very good research published in the Medical Journal of Australia, British Medical Journal and others about the nature of mandatory indefinite detention where you don't know how long your sentence is, what that does to people in terms of their psychological and physical well-being.
1: And the same with the prison system if people are given an indefinite prison sentence. And we know
8: this. This is the the situation. When the camps were re-established by Julia Gillard in 2012, we knew what was coming. And when they said that people will only be there for six months, they knew that was a lie. And we know it's a lie that this is going to take some time, even with the so-called resettlement to America. A US cabinet member told me three weeks ago this will take a very long time, and he's talking years, not weeks. We know this. There's no secret about it. Governments don't want to talk about it in the public sphere, but we should be talking about it because Pacific Islanders look at the way Australia acts to treat people. They're concerned that the media is missing the bigger picture beyond that story, but it is a story and it does affect our region and it affects Australia's reputation in the region. Now some people may think Australia's not got much of reputation left, but how you treat the vulnerable is a sign of what sort of international citizen and domestic citizen you are. How you look after people who need looking after. It's not rocket science, it's just morality. Well, it's pretty tough on own, as you can hear from my voice meeting people who's got no future, you know, who said, this island is making me crazy. That needs to be amplified, that message, more and more to people like Scott Morrison, who prides himself on creating this very system.
1: And that was journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, and I think he said it all. Hopefully we'll hear from Nick in the next couple of weeks while he's in New Caledonia.
5: launch the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane is free Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary Launch, the Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm See you there 3CR
3: supporter.
1: And in a couple of minutes, I hope to have Peter Murphy on the line. So in the meantime, we'll just hear a little bit of David Rovics.
9: From every corner of the world... They came from all around when in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground. Every voyage was a long one, months upon the stormy sea. Some to seek their fortune, others escaping slavery. What they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs, discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs. The gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse. The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one In Ballarat, beneath the southern sun The Crown tried to divide them, giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it, they said it's all of us or none They built a stockade, while the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die. The rebel miners waited for whatever lay in store. And on one December morning in 1854, the Redcoats attacked the camp. Dozens there would fall amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun The army thought it was over and things go their way But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day The Crown conceded everything, all of their demands They'd won an end to license fees, the right to vote and land So here's to Joe and Charlie, Waller and the rest They drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard 10,000 miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun.
5: for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane Entry is free Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre So come read, drink and be merry How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary Launch The Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October 3 to 6pm See you there 3CR supporter.
1: Unfortunately, I've not been able to contact Peter at the moment, so... I think for the rest of the program I might play you a few more songs and then we shall see. Oh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love
5: coming here because they offer vegan food.
4: Hi, my name is Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious.
3: <laughs>
0: Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience.
5: A 3CR supporter. Send me no
9: more letters Nor ask me how I'm going It might make you feel better But it's none of your business knowing it's none of your business now you say you regret it and all None of this business can mend, it's none of your business now.
3: Now. So go and find another.
1: Stupid... pretty emphatic decision by the eight international jurors the place Brussels, Belgium and the defendants President Rodrigo raya Duterte and his entire government, President Donald Trump and the entire U.S. government, the IMF, the World Bank, and transnational and foreign banks doing business in the Philippines. And it was at a tribunal hearing, the International People's Tribunal. Peter Murphy, representing the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, attended. Peter, can you first explain the background of this tribunal, when and why it was established?
3: I think you
0: could say that the Bertrand Russell initiative back in the 60s uh, was the important one. So uh, Bertrand Russell decided to establish a people's tribunal to um, investigate the crimes in the Vietnam War and made it quite an impact in world public opinion about the Vietnam War. In the 1970s, some of the people, I think, who were involved with the Bertrand Russell Tribunal, held a conference in Algiers, I think in in 76, adopted a declaration about people's rights and set up a permanent people's tribunal, which has meetings, events, uh, several times a year on different issues. There were two sessions of the permanent people's tribunal held on the Philippines. I think one, one was under Marcos and uh, one was under Arroyo, 2007, I think. The Filipinos had this experience, and so they decided to hold a, what they called an International People's Tribunal in the period of uh, the recent President Aquino's uh, administration. That was in 2015 and held in Washington, D.C., and this one under President Duterte in Brussels, three years since the last one. And, but these are sort of ad hoc events, They're not organised by the Permanent People's Tribunal. However, in this one, the founder of the Permanent People's Tribunal, an Italian man called Gianni Tognoni, he took part as a juror. So that was a significant strengthening of the panel in my view.
1: But it's an indictment of the political system in the Philippines, isn't it, That, that the government of the Philippines keeps coming back to these tribunals as the accused?
0: Being the accused, that's right, yeah. I think uh, it was a very alarming for, I think, the international judicial community to see the Chief Justice of the Philippines uh, removed earlier this year. There, there's other less prominent attacks being made on the judiciary at a high level uh, as well. The Ombudsman, who's actually a woman, was forced to resign. The Human Rights Commission had its budget slashed to, you know, a sort of derisory 1,000 pesos, like uh, $20. This year, but but after a protest, some budget was really restored to it, but the message was, and and there's been repeated statements by President Duterte, that uh, human rights advocates should shut up or they should be shot, (laughs) variations on on that theme. In relation to the International Criminal Court, he threatened to arrest the prosecutor, Fatou Suda, if she ever landed in Manila.
1: How was the tribunal set up? There's a prosecutor, there's defendants. Do the defendants turn up?
0: No, the defence didn't turn up, but uh, the procedure is to send the charges to the uh, accused and invite them to att- attend and present a defence. And there were places for the defence lawyers there, but uh, no-one came. The same thing happened in 2015. Whereas in 2015, Aquino administration really just ignored the the event in Washington as best they could, this time the the administration was really obsessed with it. It was broadcast live on Facebook, and when we visited the ambassador later in in, uh, Brussels, we could tell he had sat down for two days and watched it all. And I'm pretty sure because President Duterte himself made statements against the tribunal every day that he also was watching it. It's a measure of the fragility and uh, I think the insecurity of this uh, Duterte administration that, that they behaved so differently from Aquino in 2015. It was a really bad situation then in 2015. It was heartrending to attend the tribunal and listen to the evidence, but uh, this time uh, it was even more intense. Now the situation is actually far worse. I think that's the thing that uh, the Duterte Administration is is clearly confounding the international diplomatic community, judicial community, the human rights and aid sector, and uh, other sections of civil society, like the trade union movement.
1: So everyone's targeted virtually.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And what was the result?
0: Well, it wasn't a surprise, but you know, it was still a very emotional moment when this panel of eight jurors uh, read out their findings and. In the end, the lead juror, a US woman lawyer, said the defendants were found guilty on all charges. And the principal defendants were President Duterte and President Trump. Trump, because his administration has been financing directly the drug war and directly the counterinsurgency war that is targeting civilians in all sorts of sectors of society.
1: How were the jurors chosen?
0: I think there was an invitation sent to them by the conveners and uh, there was a number of convening bodies. The one I'm in, the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, was one. There's also the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, which is a global arrangement. And there was also a European Association of Lawyers for Democracy and Human Rights, which is a section of IADL. Ebon International, which is a research and advocacy institute originating in the Philippines, was another uh, one of the sponsoring bodies. Especially the lawyers in these networks are able to ask eminent people uh, if they're willing to be jurors. So I don't know how many were actually invited. I know some couldn't make it. And uh, there was one case of the Australian uh, Gil Boringa. Professor Boringa is a member of the Permanent People's Tribunal, and in the initial planning, he was going to be a juror. But when he got deported from the Philippines, it was obvious that he... He was uh, having a conflict of interest there. He became an expert witness, and this man, uh, Gianni Tognoni, himself uh, took that role. It's, an, it's a by invitation. There's uh, an effort to have people who aren't lawyers, but of course there is a solid group of, of uh, legal people on that panel of jurors.
1: You said it's pretty harrowing to listen to the witnesses. Does that mean that you heard first-hand accounts of what's been happening?
0: And in, and in some one or two cases, yes, first hand. It's a situation where I, I've, I've heard of nearly every incident because I am engaged in the campaigns around the Philippines, but it's still completely different to meet the people who have been directly in, impacted. That is, you know, it's their husband or their mother or their children um, who have been killed uh, or you know, been arrested without a warrant, and you know there's no end in sight of their incarceration without a trial. And so, uh, one of the very early cases was uh, a trade union human rights story, where the daughter of a woman who who was uh, shot dead in Negros last—I'm not sure the date. I think it's in November last year. So it's still not long ago. She was the witness. So she, she grew up in Cebu and her father was a trade union organiser, and he was just uh, arrested one day and disappeared the next day virtually. That was around 1990. So here we are, like, 18 years later. Her mother was already a very active person in the trade union movement in in the 80s and 90s. She became a human rights campaigner after her husband disappeared. She was gunned down in a real hit, you know, in uh, Negros. She was leading a 13-person team investigating other harassments just to interview the people and get witnesses and establish the facts as best as possible and uh, they were harassed themselves and when she went to make a complaint about this to the local authority she was uh, ambushed you know, the riders came up beside her on a motorcycle and shot her there were three people shot on two motorcycles yeah and so the daughter was in the team she she heard that her mother had been shot Raced to the hospital, stares her mother's body and is lifeless. So when you hear someone recount that, you know, you can't help but be very much struck by the uh, pathos of the situation, the the, the pain, the anger, um, and the sense of completely being overwhelmed by by events.
1: Unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave Peter there because of the the delay to get him online. Um, We've run out of time and done by law is waiting to come on air so I do apologise for that but um, I think you got the gist of what happened and the verdict was guilty, guilty, guilty. Time now for done by law.